last parts. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this opportunity to gather together, Father as family, in the unity of the faith. Father, thank you for said faith. Thank you for your patience, your mercy, and your love. Thank you for putting up with us, and thank you for always bringing us back to the gospel of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Father. Thank you also for enlightening us with all the details, even long after we've been saved as individuals, and reminding us as well that you save us daily, and that's all by, the, by your grace. We pray for those in the congregation that are sick or ill or even injured in Lydia's case, that uh, you make them well again and that we might see them sooner than later. Your will be done, of course. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father. We're most grateful and thankful for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt, to make an evening like this for all of us a reality even. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, we're on part three of what is repentance and who gets to define it. Um, just start off this way. One of the members of our congregation was telling me the other day that they were rereading uh, one of the books on the website titled Covert Arrogance, and they were intimating that they were finding it really nice uh, and edifying the second time around. Um, and it was interesting because it got me thinking that I ought to read one of the books there again. So I read that one really quick, and then um, I read another one called, a shorter one, The Gospel of Jesus Christ, The Boat Analogy. And I loved it, not because I wrote it, but it's good, and it's a good refresher. There's, you know, if you're ever looking for something to read and you know, you're all maybe getting sick and tired of your bathroom devotional or something, pick up a book uh, off the website. Put it on your Kindle. I, I, I think I've given you all directions on the website on how to put it on your own Kindle, your Nook, your Amazon Nook, or whatever they call those things now. That was, no, actually, that was the Barnes & Noble's one, wasn't it? Greg, help me out. You don't even know. But these uh, books, they're all there, and they've been there. Um, and they're really good reminders of so much of what the Spirit's been teaching us over the past few years. Um, in, in case in point, that uh, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the boat analogy, it's a short read and a nice way to cut to the chase regarding the conversion process even. So my point is that I encourage all of you to visit our publications page from time to time and read a book or download even the Diary of a Journeyman, which is really a compilation of all my blogs for the first year or so. And I'm just about ready to do a volume two now with all the blogs since. So you can have all the blogs on your Kindle, which is really nice. Um, so just case in point, again, there's a lot of good reading out there. And remember, if you do have a, an e-reader, uh, you can upload them that way. So with that said, uh, let's get started. A lot of good stuff in front of us on this awesome series uh, titled, What is Repentance and Who Gets to Define It? Um, I do hope that you enjoyed 
Tuesday's special presentation of the Gospel of Jesus Christ by the late R.C. Sproul on Tuesday evening. And uh, just so you know, <clears throat> Scott was chomping at the bit to teach his piece on repentance, uh, being the good evangelist he is. Um, but the Spirit informed me that it was critical that you all hear the Gospel from another pastor. The timing must have been just something that you needed. Uh, and this is an individual that uh, I highly respect, uh, and I haven't seen uh, really anything. I don't think that I disagree with him on. Um, and it, just so you know, I happened to hear that particular message from him uh, the week before. And as I was preparing, he said, you're going to show, the Spirit said to me, you're going to show the congregation that sometime soon. And I prayed on it, and he said, do it on Tuesday evening. So, you know, I did what I was told. So hopefully you enjoyed it. Um, just a few points from that message that I really enjoyed up here on the board, and I'm summarizing Sproul here. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ and his work, period. That's it. That's the gospel. What have we been learning for years now from this pulpit? The gospel is very simple. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about a person, Jesus Christ, and what he did to solve a problem that we all are born with. And that's it. And that's the gist of it. Not facts about the person. That is, again, never to be confused with merely facts about these things. Uh, Dr. Spruill certainly wasn't confused about any of it, including our current topic, namely repentance, which is one of the reasons that I um, gave you his message that way, because he's got it all straight as far as I can see. Um, not that he cared what I think, but I care about you and I care about what gets put before you. And uh, he had no problem uh, stating what he stated about the gospel, and he, he was, he's very, as far as I'm concerned, very accurate on his viewpoint on repentance. That uh, it is absolutely part of the gospel conversation, and that an unrepentant person isn't a saved person. They have to be repentant. doesn't mean they do the work, but they have to have repentance. That's the point. So I'll give you some more of what he said on repentance here. What is repentance? True repentance is confidently grounded in what God says about himself in his word, but it expresses itself in humility toward him. We come before our Creator with confidence that he is faithful and just to forgive, us, forgive our sins, 1 John 1, 8 and 9, but we come humbly, refusing to believe or affirm that he owes us forgiveness. Every act of divine forgiveness is an instance of the Lord keeping his promises to pardon his people, but it is at the same time a forgiveness we never deserve. That's what humility looks like. And humility and repentance are almost the same thing. They're, they spring from one another, as we'll see in Scripture as we continue. This is obviously not something Pastor Spruill invented, uh, this viewpoint into repentance but rather something that every believer has understood intimately at some level. Why do I know that? Because the Bible says God gives it to believers. That's how I know. Um, so it's certainly not something he invented, but rather something that every believer has understood intimately to some degree, whether someone contemporary or someone from the Old Testament even. So let's do a little synthesizing. Go to Acts 13.22. 
Acts 13.22. Repentance is still our topic. Um, go to Acts 13.22. Acts 13.22 After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So that's a very curious statement, isn't it? Up here on the board, a man after my heart. While God is perfect and man isn't, he affirms this statement about David multiple times in his word. 1 Samuel 13, 14, Psalm 89, 20, and as we just saw, Acts 13, 22. And David, his humble servant, the subject, if you would, reveals the truth of it. For example, a repentant heart multiple times in the word. Psalm 32, 38, 51. So there's ample evidence in the Word of God on this topic. And David's a perfect example of humility and repentance. As we continue to read the Bible, what you're all going to see is something very simple and very true up here on the board. And this is not a novel concept from this pulpit. Humility is the key to the spiritual life. For example, a repentant heart is a humble heart. A repentant heart is a humble heart. As Spruill stated, true repentance expresses itself in humility towards God. True repentance expresses itself in humility towards God. In other words, as we're about to see with King David, who is absolutely a believer, saved by the grace of God, whose sins were taken on the cross along with yours and mine, Yes, that great man we read about in Holy Scripture, that wonderfully humble man, King David exuded the very definition of repentance. So here we have a man described by God as a man after his own heart. We've learned many times from this pulpit that David was a very humble individual. And as we're getting into this topic of repentance, what we see is that same humble individual is the, the, the very definition of a repentant individual. Go to Psalm 51 0. Psalm 51 0. Psalm 51 verse 0. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. In other words, he was an adulterer. So King David, a man after God's heart, this humble man, this, as we'll see, repentant man, was an adulterer. This so-called great man who has many chapters dedicated to him uh, in the Bible was an adulterer. And that's the launching pad. Think about that. That's the launching pad. That's the context of this magnificent chapter. So we need to take a pause for a moment here. 
We know from all of our studies over the years that God despises adultery as a sin, of course. And he even uses it to describe those who are unfaithful to him and his son, our Lord. In fact, in the church age, we even have the ever-present illustration of the church as the bride of Christ through human marriage. I mean, that's the illustration we're given. That's the institution of human marriage. It's a reflection of Christ and his bride. And God hates adulterers. So it's fair, I shouldn't say he hates adultery. It's fair to say that God places a lot of emphasis on the institution of marriage in the Bible. And yet, he is this adulterer. He calls this adulterous murderer. So if you know the story of David, you know he didn't just adulterate with Bathsheba. He then murdered Uriah, her husband, in a passive way, but he absolutely did it on purpose, knowing that he would be killed. That guy is that guy? Yeah. Why? You know why? Because he was humble and he hated sin. Just like God. Just like God. And he didn't just have some, you know, mental recognition of it. It crushed him. It bothered him. He was contrite. Remember the word contrite? He was ground down like, uh, like you would call it, like cornmeal between two uh, wheels, you know, like a, a millstone, between a millstone. That's what contrite meant, to be ground down. So this is David, a man after my heart, described by God. So again, while God is perfect and man isn't, he affirms the statement about David multiple times in his word, and David, his humble servant, reveals the truth of it. For example, a repentant heart multiple times in the word. And that, of course, brings us to that point that humility is the key to the spiritual life. For example, a repentant heart is a humble heart. So before we go even further, I guess we could say that we should be encouraged not to sin, not be like, hey, you know, I could be an adulterous murderer and I could be a man after God's own heart. That's, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's poor motivation. <laughs> so <laughs> may it never be. You know, just because God gives grace doesn't mean we have to put that grace to the test. That's what he, that's what Paul's retort was in Romans 5 and 6. But rather that God is merciful to the humble, repentant heart and man, if he sees it, whoever that may be. Again, let's see what this heart of David looks like, and let us not forget the context. Look at verse 0 again. A psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba, so he was an adulterer. Verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my mother, uh, in, in, in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, 
and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. You see who's doing the work, of course. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Again, look who's doing the work. This is a repentant man. Look who's doing the work. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. But your favor, do good to Zion. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. Then the young bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, interestingly enough, our next passage would have actually come before, we're going to look at chapter 32, before 51 chronologically. In any case, um, I want to read another chapter from this humble man that God has deemed a man after his own heart. What do you see? Do you see contrition or attrition? I see contrition. I see a repentant man. I see a man weighed deeply down by his own sin. And who does he turn to? What does any repentant heart turn to? Lord Jesus Christ, to God, to save him. That's the whole idea of repentance. So as we do, consider the contrite heart of this man and consider those, quote, Christians who claim that repentance is merely a recognition of sin or maybe just saying, oh yeah, I believe I'm a sinner. That's not repentance. That's not biblical repentance. That's some perverted definition of repentance. That's why we're doing this work here. That's why we're looking at a man after God's own heart in a moment of repentance. He's not just saying, oh yeah, I sinned. <laughs> Big deal. Oh, I killed a man. Big deal. I'm a murderous adulterer. Big deal. I, I said it. I said it. Right? I, conf I confessed it. I said it. My heart doesn't be, have to be involved. I, no, I don't have to be contrite. I just have to say it so I don't get punished. Huh? Hand in the cookie jar. No, no, don't punish me. Do you see that in David? I don't. I see the very model of humility and repentance. So as we continue to read about this man that God says is a man after his own heart, consider his contrition. Again, consider also, as we're reading these things, that there exists whole factions of Christians, quote-unquote, that claim repentance is merely a recognition of sin 
or of being a sinner, some kind of mental gymnastic only. In the absence of contrition, and consider the ramifications of doing so. Here's what we know. God hates sin. Just put that in perspective. God hates sin. What makes you think that the sinner, if he's going to, let's say, model after David, a man after his own heart, doesn't have to hate sin, just has to recognize it. So it makes perfect sense that a, quote, man after his own heart would hate offending the one who saved him from the throes of sin. It would make all the sense in the world that a man after God's own heart and God hates sin would be, let's say, upset about it, about being the person sinning. Would we expect anything less from that person? I think not. All right, let's read our next chapter. Go to Psalm 32, verse 1. Another Psalm of David. Psalm 32, verse 1. Look at the gratitude of this man, understanding the grace of God. Psalm 32, 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Salah. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Salah. Therefore let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Salah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Again, another passage where David's contrition is on full display. And who does he turn to? He always turns to the Lord. Because that's what a repentant heart does. Think of Job. What did he say at the very end? I think it was chapter 43, right? He says, I repent and retract in dust and ashes. After he had to gird his loins. After he had to be reminded of the sovereignty of God. You see, sovereignty and repentance go hand in hand person's not going to be exactly humbled or even repentant if they think very little of God. 
So I hope you see how all this comes right back to the gospel proper. As the Spirit's been teaching us from day one regarding the overall salvation plan of God, these concepts, these concepts the, the gospel, salvation, repentance, faith, etc., they are all lifelong gifts that we get to enjoy. These are not split-second decisions that are merely mental. These are gifts from God. And our access to the wellspring of the lot of them is one basic thing. And even this, we've argued from this pulpit, is a gift from God. Humility. That's as good as it gets for we humans. Bless you. Before we even go one step further in our study here, I want you to know that whenever I'm preparing these lessons, my heart is doing somersaults. And I'm praying for all of you that you see it as plainly as I do. Um, I was telling Scott the other day, God has actually had me on, almost not in a holding pattern, to use a pilot analogy, but in a holding pattern. Go over there near that beacon and just do circles for a little while because there's still some people that need to catch up. And so I'm praying for you all to see things. This is so simple. It's not complicated. It's incredibly simple. So I just want you to see it the way I see it. I just want you to see how simple all of this is and why no Christian ought to be confused about any of this ever. Remember, God's not a God of confusion. He's not interested in overcomplicating things. Although, with that said, it's understandable, given all the false doctrines out there, that some are confused. Because Satan's really good at overcomplicating things. That's his specialty. He preys on the flesh of mankind. Man's inherent desire to uh, overcomplicate for the sake of stratification. But when you realize that it's as simple as man falling and God saving, those who desire to be saved... Every jot and tittle in the Bible makes perfect sense and just falls into place. And that is my prayer for all of you. Here is our opening principle from Sunday's lesson on the gospel call. A person who never shows up, mind, heart, and will cannot receive the free gift of salvation by grace through faith. This is not just some flippant recognition. I gave you the, Remember I gave you the analogy even of the demons who saw Jesus Christ, who saw Him die on the cross, who saw the resurrected Lord, and they still don't believe. They still don't trust in Him. They still haven't been given saving faith, you see. And that's the same thing as an unbeliever. They can know all the facts. I know, I know unbelievers right now that know all the facts about Jesus Christ. And they actually, some, believe it or not, I've actually met some that believe them to be true. What? They actually believe them to be true, and yet they'll say, but I don't believe it. I don't have trust in Him as my Savior. 
Go to James 4.1. James 4, verse 1. So God's looking, the point is that God's looking for a little something different than what today's or contemporary Christianity will have you believe. Contemporary Christianity lies to you. Lies has lied, and, 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 and I want you to know, too, most of the lies that I've been fighting on your behalf for the last few years are contemporary. If you go back even 100 to 150 years, it was a different set of problems. It was a different classification or even category of attacks predominantly on the gospel. It's just the way it goes. I mean, go to James 4.1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong, motiva- with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. That is literally the exact same pattern that I've been fighting against with the gospel. Wrong motives. Why? Because you just want it for you. You say, I want, of course I want to go to heaven. I don't want to, I don't like the idea. I'm not willing to surrender the self-life, like Jesus said. But I definitely want the heaven thing, because I don't want the opposite. So I'm going to play this little game and hedge a few bets. That's wrong motivations. So you don't receive saving faith. That's the point. That's not a repentant heart. That's not a humble heart at all. That's a person who's arrogant enough to be playing games. To think God's gospel can be fiddled with, mangled, modified, accommodating to man. Verse 3 again. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, there it is. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility? Toward God, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us, but He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. I mean, just on those words alone, I could arguably halt this lesson right now and say, See, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. That's more than sufficient evidence. For as I've taught you so adamantly in the past, we look for clearly stated doctrine in the Word of God, and we righteously rest on it. Well, I mean, it doesn't get much clearer than that. In verse 10, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. That's the Greek word uh, tapinoo, up here on the board. It means to make low. Show humility, true lowliness, 
happens by being fully dependent on the Lord, dismissing reliance upon self, self-government, and emptying, that's uh, Latin, carnal ego, it means look at me, emptying that thing. This exalts the Lord as our all in all and prompts the gift of his fullness in us. That's what it means to humble yourself. Humility is a real thing. We just saw it with David in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. It's not some mental decision only. The point here is that while a truly humble person is a truly repentant person, and remember our lessons on contrition versus attrition, while a truly humble person is a truly repentant person, like King David, an arrogant person, for example, a covertly arrogant person, will never actually willingly submit to God's offer of grace. And in the most fundamental place of all sits the issue of salvation proper. Where an arrogant person may never be humbled enough to where their soil is ready for the gospel seed to grow and bear good fruit. As John the Baptist would say in Matthew 3.8, Therefore bear fruit. How? In keeping with repentance. Go bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Arrogance doesn't think the gospel call to repentance is worth it. That's the problem with arrogant people. They weigh it. They're constantly trying to, what, hedge bets, outsmart God, do a little of this, a little mental gymnastics, huh? And get what they want and keep the self-life. Yay, so they don't want to get rid of the self-life. So the call to repentance, the real one, true repentance, isn't worth it to them. So God says, no, you're not getting it. I give repentance. I'll give you a repentant heart if you're open to the truth of it. But if you're not, if you're just basically telling the Spirit right now as He tries to evangelize you even, that you don't want it, then I'm not going to give it to you. If you'd prefer to die in your sins, I'll let you. If you prefer the self-life over what I have to offer by grace, then I'll give it to you. Sounds like a fair God to me. Stupid choice by man, made every single day by millions of people. But what are we supposed to do? We want do we do we really want to do we really want to take on this and say I don't like the Bible's version of repentance. It's too intimate. It's too real. It's too accommodating to God. It's too demanding. You really want to go that route? You want to challenge what's in the Bible and try to accommodate man and then lie to yourself and then lie to other people about what true repentance is and who gives it and who he gives it to? I don't want to play that game. As Paul says in, I believe it's Galatians 1, I'd be, I should be accursed peddling that kind of gospel. May the judgment of God be on my head peddling that kind of gospel. Arrogance despises Jesus' words. Go to Mark 8.34. Mark 8.34. That is the truth. Arrogance despises Jesus' words. 
takes issue with them. I don't know why. I'm being facetious. Mark 8.34 And he, Jesus, summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Up here on the board, he must deny himself. Repentance involves a mind, heart, and will of man. A person unwilling unwilling to deny himself, cannot follow Jesus, precluding them from his salvation. That's what I liked about the boat analogy. It's just so simple. If you get in this boat, I can take you over here. I want to get in the boat because I like it over here. I want both. But you've got to get in here. You've got to leave that behind. You've got to be willing. I'll even... Listen to this. You ready? My spirit will actually pick you up and bring you. You don't even have to walk through the water. You don't have to swim to the boat. You don't have to climb in the boat. I'm just, the, my spirit will pick you up and put you, place you in the boat. And when he's picking you up, as you're leaving that behind, that, we call that repentance. And when you get in the boat, I'll give you faith in Christ. And there you go. But if you're unwilling to leave the self-life behind, if you want to cling to it, if you don't have any unction whatsoever against it, I'm not going to do that for you. That's what Jesus meant. Jesus wasn't saying, you and your flesh have to uh, do all these things over here and clean up your act and be all religious. Jesus never said that. That would be human works. That's what the religious people play. That's the Tower of Babel. That's people trying to climb up. That's not what Jesus was saying at all. He's saying the fact is you've got to deny yourself. You can't be both. You've got to be willing. And if you're unwilling, then I'm not going to save you. So personally, I get a kick out of people who say that repentance is a human work. Concentrate for a moment. It's interesting that some people say that repentance is a human work and therefore somehow excluded from the gospel call. And they will always go back to you know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which is an unbelievable passage. I say, see? And I'll say, yeah, I see. It's awesome, isn't it? Wait a minute, I thought we disagreed. I don't disagree with anything you're saying. <laughs> Matter of fact, I believe I understand grace more than you do. Because you think repentance is a work of man. And that's why you can't include it in the gospel call. Seems like one of us understands a little bit more about greater grace. So it's interesting that some people call something as fundamental and demanded from Jesus Christ and all of His apostles and Paul as repentance, a human work. Or maybe even more specifically, this process of conversion. Yet these same people, you ready for this? Now concentrate. These same people will say that a person must believe, which is absolutely true, of course. I agree. 
A person must believe. And yet somehow believing is not a human work by their own perverted definition of works. Somehow Satan has gotten people thinking that two things that are categorically the same in terms of human effort are somehow treated vastly differently. Repentance is no more human work than believing is, and vice versa. As we'll continue to see, and as I've taught from day one in our gospel reload, let's say, on the topic of salvation, God does all the work. Listen, people, this is what the Spirit's teaching you. As soon as Michelle's done gagging. <laughs> You're going to make it over there? <laughs> this is what the Spirit's teaching us. This is what He's been trying to say. Is it all done? All right, good. Not to draw time. I just want to, yeah, because. You ready? Say it with me. Who does all the work? First word. God does all the work in salvation. All of it. Not part of it. All of it. And if Jesus Christ says, you have to repent, you've got to deny yourself, and then every apostle ever since said the same thing. Then it has to be a work of God in salvation. God does all the work in salvation, quickening a humble person to true repentance and saving faith in Jesus Christ. Unbelievers represent those unwilling to be saved. That's the whole thing. Jesus Christ, as we started off with Sproul, for example, and he doesn't corner the market on this, it's just fact. It's what the Bible says. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ and his work. So if we're going to accept Jesus Christ at his word, what did he say? Repent. Believe. Sounds like grace to me. Especially when God does all the work. Again, God does all the work in salvation, quickening a humble person to true repentance and saving faith in Jesus Christ. Unbelievers represent those unwilling to be saved. As Jesus clearly stated, their issue is their attachment to the self-life. Matthew 8.34 That's the problem. Hence our previous point. Actually, I think that should say Mark 8.34. Mark, are you still there, Mark 8.34? Yeah, look at Mark 8.34 again. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay. If anyone, anyone, not just Jews, anyone, this is a statement of fact about his own gospel. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Doesn't say that they have to do all the heavy lifting, does it? It just says that that has to happen. Again, up here on the board, repentance involves the mind, heart, and will of man. A person unwilling to deny himself cannot follow Jesus, precluding them 
from his salvation. Never forget that a humble heart is a willing heart. That's the key. A humble heart is a willing heart, which means the following. For example, as we saw with King David, a humble heart cries out in desperation, not fully understanding all of the forensics of salvation. There's a lot of things that, say, the Apostle Paul gets into in the, in the New Testament. But he's never, ever, ever, ever trying to present another gospel. Ever. There's no more. There's one gospel. I just wrote a blog. I'm gonna, a little uh, spoiler alert. One kingdom, one gospel. That's it. One kingdom, one gospel. That's it. A humble heart cries out in desperation, not fully understanding all the forensics of salvation, but convicted of who is able to save it. That's the key. A person who's unrepentant doesn't even think they need to be saved. A person who's not humble doesn't recognize maybe the sovereignty of God, so therefore doesn't feel the need to be saved. But is what is... Let's see, uh, humanly wise enough to hedge a bet? I was reading um, uh, Rock of Ages by Augustus uh, Toplady. And this is how it goes. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. And there's this famous passage um, verse in this. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown, and behold thee on thy throne, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. That's not a um, passing glance at a few facts about a so-called Savior. So I ask you one thing in this precious moment in time. Do you see it? And you don't have to tell me, but do you see it? The magnificent simplicity of all of this. That's what he's been teaching us for two, three years now. It's not hard. It's actually really simple. All of this is very simple. Again, look at Mark 8.34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's We'll save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Again, the point the Spirit's making here, up here on the board, on this idea of unfruitful soil, arrogance maintains an unrepentant soil that will not receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will receive a different gospel from a different spirit regarding another Jesus, to use 2 Corinthians 11.4 language. And it will even bear fruit after that kind, but it will never be fruit of the true vine, as per John 15.5. That's unfruitful soil. And please never forget what the Bible says about willingness to be saved. For even repentance is granted by God. Up here on the board, Acts 11.18. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Hey, wait a minute. Where's faith? Where's all the stuff in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? Where's all the stuff in 1 Corinthians 15? Where's, all the, where's John 3, 16? Where's all the stuff? How can he say that repentance that leads to life? What's he getting at? Look at To the writers of the New Testament, the gospel is so obvious to them that they could use words like faith and repentance and be talking about the same gospel. Because it was implied that it was the same gospel. Of course repentance leads to eternal life. Of course faith leads to eternal life. Is that not true? Of course believing in the Lord Jesus Christ leads towards eternal life. Is that the whole gospel? Is the whole gospel in John 3.16? How could it be? How could it be? You don't know anything about Jesus Christ. Jesus could be anything. If the the only verse you've ever heard from the Bible was John 3.16, how are you going to believe in someone you don't even know anything about? Do you understand what I'm getting at? To the writers of the New Testament, these things were interchangeable. Just like you you use language that's interchangeable. Um, I'm going to put on my chapstick. Do you know chapstick's a brand, right? That's not actually, this is called lip balm. But if I say chapstick, you know, even though it says Burt's Bees, you know what I'm talking about, right? How dare I? How dare I use a convention like that? Understanding that you know exactly what I'm going to say if I use chapstick. How dare anybody do that? How dare someone just use his repentance and not the whole gospel in a sentence? How dare they do that? What? Speak like a normal human being? That's what happens when you um, carve the Bible from the bottom up. Your doctrines change as quickly as the number of verses you have under your belt memorized, or maybe Greek words. What do you think he's been doing? This entire ministry, 10 years almost now, is top-down. Is big picture. Get out of the weeds, all you little nerds, says the king of nerds, who was anointed to lead you out of the weeds and knew the way. 
get out of the weeds. Stop resting your entire gospel on a single passage or a single verse or, God forbid, a a single word. What do you think he's been doing? He's saying, open your eyes. (laughs) This is really simple. Step back. You know, if you're this close to the television screen, all you can see is the little dots. That one's red, yup. That one's yellow, and that one's blue. And if you step back, you see Jesus Christ, and he's like, I've been waiting. Throughout the Bible, we see this call to repentance. And the human, let's call it the human paradox, if we think like mere men do, is that God is asking something from man that he simply cannot do. I know. He says, repent. Deny yourself. Believe. Have faith. (laughs) Wait a minute. Then who can be saved? This is ridiculous. Who can do this stuff? Especially an unbeliever. Who's still stuck in the flesh? The person doesn't know the first thing about true repentance. The person doesn't know the first thing about true saving faith in Jesus Christ. They're just willing and available. And when, he, when, when they hear the gospel call, they say, okay, I'm on board. Deliver me from this thing that I was born in. I'm, I'm open. Let's go. You do the work, though, because I'm basically useless. And he says, I know. And he picks you up out of the sovereignty of sin, and he delivers you to the sovereignty of Christ. And he does all the work. And then you begin to learn. And then you begin to appreciate all the forensics that Paul wrote about, say, in Romans So the human paradox, if we think like mere men do, is that God is asking something from man that he simply cannot do. And here's the thing. Why even stop there? I mean, how can a fallen creature even believe without God's help? That thing hates Jesus Christ. That thing despises God. So how can that thing even believe? Why stop with just repentance? I think we need a little bit of help. Amen? In all of it, including repentance, including belief, including humility, including faith. That's the point. And you know what we call that? You ready for this? A greater grace. That's the whole point the Spirit's been making here. Again, <laughs> I mean, who can be saved? Isn't that what the, the apostles asked? And who can be saved? I mean, this sounds impossible for someone who's in the flesh. And you know what? It is. How does an unbeliever, whose only faculty is the human flesh, go about repenting or even believing? Easy, God gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6, with people, this is impossible, but with God, 
all things are possible, Matthew 19, 26. What that means in every individual soul, you're looking at the wrong guy. How the heck do I know? What do I know what the conversion process looks like in that person's soul versus that one? How do I know? I just know the facts. I know what Jesus said. Repent. You've got to deny yourself. These things have to happen. Don't worry about it. With God, all things are possible. I don't know exactly what everybody's salvation day looks like. How could I? How could I? I'm not even expected. All my job is to teach the truth and get through all the cobwebs and cut, cut through all the complexities that shouldn't even be there and say, do you see it? Do you see it? It's really simple. <laughs> that's, all, that's all Paul fought for. That's all Peter fought for. Jesus Christ. Was Je- you ever th- I was having that conversation with my mom today. Was Jesus Christ complicated? Let's face it. No. He didn't speak in big words even. He made things very simple. Again, just give me a couple extra minutes of your time. We're almost out of time, but I need to go just a couple minutes over. The general truth about demands. The Bible is chock full of demands that are literally impossible for man to obey without the help of the one making them. While this seems paradoxical, it is nothing less than God's grace. God is merely looking for willingness, humility, and man. I think the issue for some folks is the key, or the key to understanding repentance is to recognize what James meant when he wrote, go to James 4.6. Go to James 4.6 quick, uh, quickly. I think this is the problem. At least for many people, with the idea, the concept of repentance, I think they don't understand what James meant when he wrote what he wrote in James 4.6. Before the, pass, or the phrase that we've been using for a, lot, a while now. James 4.6 says, But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Up here on the board, let me give you some food for thought on that topic. A greater grace, the power of God's grace alone, is able to save man from sin. His grace is greater, to use James' language, than all enemies opposing it, the flesh, the world, and Satan. True repentance is a grace gift. So, here's what I'll leave you with. You tell me which scenario is a greater grace, to use James's point. Believing that repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin in salvation, or believing that while faith is a grace gift from God, repentance is somehow a work of man. What is a greater grace? When is God giving more? When He gives repentance and faith to a willing heart, to a willing soul? Or when He only gives one, and supposedly the other one is a human work? Will you tell me what's a greater grace on the pathway to salvation? You tell me that Jesus was out of line when he said repent, when John the Baptist was out of line, when every apostle said was out of line, when they believed that repentance was a necessity. You tell me what's a greater grace. When God gives us both, or God gives us one and says good luck with that other one. 
And then theologically say, well, crud, I mean, if, if that's a human work, we can't even have it in the gospel conversation. Because then it wouldn't be grace. Back up, my friend. You don't, get the, you don't get the definition of repentance yet. You don't understand greater grace yet. That's your problem. <laughs> it's a greater grace. The truth is, as Holy Scripture states, God saves. If God demands that we repent and have faith, which He does, then He must give us said things. For that is the crux of our previous principle up here on the board, the general truth about demands. The Bible is chock full of demands that are literally impossible for man to obey without the help of the one making them. While this seems paradoxical, it is nothing less than God's grace. God is merely looking for willingness and humility in man. That is why I taught you the following principle on Sunday. Salvation is never preceded by unrepentance. While God will indeed wait patiently for man's soil to be ready to receive the gospel seed, his demand for repentance never, ever wanes. How could it? And this is good, because it would be asinine to think that the holy God of the universe would somehow expect man on his own, in his naturally born condition, to solve the salvation issue. We might rightly say that anyone who says that true repentance is a work of man doesn't understand God's grace, at least not the full extent of it. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful privilege to study your word here. Thank you for giving us truth that sets us free. We just ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.